for the hate that we hold lead us to another holocaust. So we're so deep in it that we can't get it. Stop, hold, ever call it off. It's too clear, nuclear, too near, and the holders of the Molotov. Say the revolution's right here, right now, and they ain't calling off. Welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman, here almost each and every week bringing you sports, society, and stuff. Creeping up on our one-year anniversary, we started the week after Thanksgiving last year, so that's pretty exciting. And actually, I have my first ever guest and my second ever guest, both on this four-person panel, including myself, for this week's very special Hammer Time Podcast episode, because a lot has happened since our last podcast, and we have a number of things to discuss uh, I'm going to start with the person sitting right next to me, right on my left right now. Bleeding Green Nation does so many things. I just saw him in Antigone, and he was really good. So we got Ben Natan here. Ben, how are you? I'm I'm still breathing. I'm uh, I'm all right. You know, I guess I guess that's probably the status for for a lot of people. We're just kind of okay. Um, yeah, that's how I am. Yeah, tre- treading water is probably a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, also, we have the second ever guest of the Hammer Time podcast, Arif Hassan, with us. Arif, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I was bad, but now I'm good. <laughs> and we also have another past guest of multiple podcasts, uh, Chuck McDonald, with us. So I'm a, I was at like a one last week. Uh, I think I'm at like a two now, so we're getting better. So, yeah, clearly we have a lot to talk about outside the realm of sports, and we're going to talk about it later in the podcast um, for sure. So if you want to listen to that, get ready. If not, then have fun skipping that part of the podcast. Um, But we're going to start with sports because we're pretty far along with the NFL season now. I mean, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Uh, We pretty much know which teams are good and which teams are bad at this point. So I figure we just go around in a circle and talk about how our teams are doing. Uh, We have... (sighs) Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Chuck, let's start with you. Let's start with the Falcons. How are the Falcons doing? Uh, well, they lost to Ben's Eagles on Sunday. Yeah, they did. Uh, and, you know, like, this, this season just feels like a complete waste of time because the offense is, is you know, championship caliber, but the defense is really young and they're pretty bad. And, you know, they have some – some bright spots with Beasley, Brady Jarrett, Keanu Neal, Deion Jones, but it's the consistency just isn't there at all. So, I mean, I, I already know how this is going to end. They're probably going to win the division, and then they're going to lose in the wild card, and we're just going to be sad, just like always. Well, at least Paul Warlow isn't uh, taking up a lot of snaps this year. Doesn't he have, like, 12 defensive snaps this year or something like that? Yeah, until Sunday when he had 29, and I'd want to throw up. Ben, you're an Eagles fan. You didn't watch this game, but... I did, I did, actually. Oh, you did watch this yeah, game. Yeah, I got to watch it on Rewind. So, what, what were your thoughts watching this game? And what are your thoughts on your team in general? Um, so, I just want to bring up the fact that my Eagles are 3-0 and against all of your teams in the past, <laughs> in all of their games. I just want to bring that up right now, it's before true. I get into the details. Like, beat the Pats, beat the Falcons, beat the Vikings. 
Um, the Eagles are bad, though. They're, I mean... <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of the opposite of, of Chuck's situation with the Falcons, where the Eagles have a really outstanding defense, and their offense is super young, where they have a rookie quarterback who's, I think, exceeded... I mean, he's exceeded my expectations. He's still not great, but he's had really nice moments. But uh, like what what I said to Chuck the other day about the Eagles receiving core, it's a basically a grouping of trash cans that are covered in lubricant, um, and they're all useless um, for this or that or the other thing. I mean, Jordan Matthews is like okay, and then the rest of the team is just awful around Carson Wentz on offense. So it's that whatever. So bad, man. Dude, Aguilar and Doriel, like, if I never have to see Nelson Aguilar or Doriel Green Beckham take another NFL snap, I don't think I'll lose a minute of sleep. It's like, they are, they are just so, so bad. And, like, especially with, especially with Green Beckham, and, and I feel like I talk about this all the time because it really frustrates me. It's like, he has not been good since high school. And, like, I want to make that very, very clear. Like, he was, like, so inconsistent when he was at Missouri. And then his combine was, like, mediocre at best. Like, mediocre at best. Um, and then he was, like, just okay in Tennessee. And, like, ever, like every single year, it's, oh, this is the year that Doriel Green Beckham's going to break out. It's every single year since he's been fucking 18 years old. It's, gonna, it's the same narrative about him. And he's not, he's not going to do it because he doesn't care about football. And I'm sick and tired of seeing him drop, like, easy passes. And then he'll catch a slant and run 10 yards. And everyone's like, oh, my God, he has so much potential. It's like, shut the fuck up. Like, nobody cares about those slants. Um, the Eagles just need to really move on from him and Aguilar in the offseason. Maybe not Aguilar, just because Aguilar's actually shown something in the last three years where Beckham hasn't. Um, but they need a viable number one in that offense. The, the defense is good, though, but the team is bad. You know, you could always trade Aguilar to the Niners for a third. Yeah, that's true. Give him back to Chip. That's true. Let Give Chip him, work his magic. They, they tried to trade Josh Huff to the Niners, um, but the Eagles apparently wanted a, day, a, a high day three pick for Huff. Um, the Niners weren't going to do it, so they cut Huff. So they only cut him after they couldn't trade him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Arif, how about the Vikings? You guys aren't doing so well. Man, fuck this team, man. So dumb. So, okay, so I knew this team was, like, not as good as its record when they were, like, 5-0. and Like, I was taking a look over, you know, my nerd numbers, and my nerd numbers were saying, this team is probably, like, the 10th best team in the NFL. And I was like, well, maybe. Maybe the numbers don't take into account, like, the importance of extremes and stuff like that. And, like, you know, because the defense was, like, so good. But I was like, you know, there's a bunch of unsustainable stuff here. Uh, and, you know, the Vikings really, like, skated by with, like, a lot of luck. And I don't just mean, like, fumble luck or, you know, turnover luck and stuff like that. But, like, I think there's, like, some degree of luck involved in Sam Bradford actually, like, playing as well as he has. Uh, because I think that the balance of his career has shown that he is, like, maybe the 20th best quarterback in the NFL. And he's playing, like, a top 10 quarterback. And in fairness, right now, he is still playing kind of like a top 10, top 15 uh, quarterback, which is great. But, like, just everything has, like, kind of fallen apart. And I think all of the things that were problems have now kind of reasserted themselves without the ability of luck to, like, paper over them. So, like, the Vikings have lost six offensive linemen that were slated to start. Like, that's a whole offensive line and then one more. 
Uh, and then they've also, I mean, obviously they lost Teddy Bridgewater and they lost Adrian Peterson and, uh, you know, they lost Shorty Floyd basically for the whole season, which, I mean, like Tom Johnson and like Shamar Stefan have been really good in their specific roles, but teams know that you can run a Tom Johnson and pass against Shamar Stefan without having to worry. And I don't know, man, like everything is just like, it's poop. Everything is poop. Uh, and they, they can't figure stuff out because the only way anything works is if the defense is playing just like fucking lights out. And, you know, you're all talking about like how when you've got like a young defense or a young offense, they're like prone to make mistakes. And the Vikings have a relatively young defense uh, and they've been avoiding those mistakes and they're making those mistakes now. And they don't really have the ability to sort of correct for them, especially when sort of the, the, the most important players like players like Anthony Barr and Harrison Smith have just been just like absent or not playing well. I mean, Harrison Smith has had mostly a good year, but his last two games were pretty catastrophically bad. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Anthony Barr has just been pretty bad, you know, the entire year. Uh, and that kind of just shuts everything down because, like, the way that you attack the Vikings' defense kind of requires Anthony Barr to do well. And in the defense, I should, like, clarify, like, the defense isn't bad. They're just, like, not good. And that really puts a lot of pressure on an offense that, has had the worst running game the NFL has seen since the 1953 Giants. Like, having a sub 3.0 yards per carry is just insane to me. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's because of this offensive line problem. I, I really am a Jarek McKinnon truther, and I think that he's, like, a fine running back. But, I, like, even, even Adrian Peterson couldn't get much done when he was healthy. Uh, and, you know, not that Adrian Peterson was, like, good anymore, but he was, like, fine, too, and, and he couldn't get anything done. So, like... There's just, like, there's nothing that can lift the team, and that's the problem. Like, the team is okay. Like, they're playing, like, you know, an average above average team, generally speaking, but there's never a situation where you can count on a unit to do a thing, and that's, like, why they're 5-4 instead of, like, 7-2. So it's annoying, but, I mean, they're a good team, and I, I still think that they're probably favorites to win the division uh, just because I don't, like, trust the Lions and the Packers are bad again. Um uh, and the, and the Bears are, you know, the Bears. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, kind of like Chuck said, I mean, they'll, they'll make the playoffs and then, like, lose the first game. But, hey, they replaced their kicker. Finally, mercifully, the traitor Blair <laughs> right. Walsh. The traitor. <laughs> it really doesn't make sense to me how much time they dedicated to keeping him. Can you explain that? I, I kind of get it. So, like, his rookie year was one of the best uh, rookie years slash one of the better years that we've seen from a kicker. I think he set an NFL record for the most 50-plus yard field goals made. He was 10 for 10, uh, and he kicked a couple of game winners. Uh, and then, you know, he was good but not as good the following year, and then he was, like, legitimately bad in, like, 2014 or something like that. 2015, he actually improved is the thing. His 2015 was fine. I think a lot of people kind of forget that, that his 2015, he was probably the 10th, maybe 12th best kicker in the NFL. Uh, and then he had that game against the Seahawks, which on balance, actually a good game. He had, he had like a 54-yarder in a condition where a 54-yarder, I think, is is like closer to like uh, a 58-yarder, like because of the cold and the wind. Uh, and uh, and he ma- and he scored all of the points the Vikings had scored in that game. Uh, and then so he makes a couple of kicks that he probably shouldn't have made, you know, quote unquote shouldn't have. And then he misses the one that he should, and it just like screwed with his head. Uh, he's the worst extra point kicker in the NFL right now. Um, like he's, he's only hit like 70%. I don't know, like some stupid amount of his extra points. And if it wasn't for uh, Robert Aguayo, he'd be the worst field goal kicker uh, in the NFL right now. So I, I think that the reason they gave him 
that leash is because his 2015 was actually fine until the final kick of the season. Uh, and, and, and this year he went on a run of like nine consecutive kicks that he made over the course of, I think three games. And so they thought he was out of his rut and then he fell back into it. So I think that's the reason they gave him the time they did. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely strange. And the Anthony Barr's bad revelation is something that definitely stuck up on me. I just realized it this week when, who caught the long touchdown on him or the long pass? In the, uh, I think it was Jordan Reed. Yeah, I believe it was Jordan Reed. I, he got burned, and I was really surprised. But Xavier really was still playing okay. I think it was Vernon Davis, right? No, no, no. It was, it was Vernon, Vernon Davis, Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I remember, like, fine, Vernon Davis, like, you know, created space with route running and stuff like that. But Anthony Barr couldn't recover against, like, a 40-year-old. Do you think he overbulked? I wonder if he got a little bit too big. Because that's sort of what happened to Jamie Collins, which is another thing that we haven't talked about in this podcast since that happened. <sighs> Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure what happened, to Anthony Barr. I don't think he got uh, too big necessarily. Um, but I, I guess I don't know for sure. Yeah, I can talk about the Patriots quickly. Um, the offense is really good, and Martellus Bennett is probably now their second most important player to resign next year after Dante Hightower because he's been so fantastic for them on offense. Um, Deion Lewis is even back yet. He'll be back probably next week, which is really exciting. On defense, they shouldn't have traded Jamie Collins. I don't care what Bill Belichick says. If they couldn't figure out how to use him, that's their problem. That's not Jamie Collins' problem. He still was one of the most dynamic players on the field at times, and he's better in coverage than Landon Roberts, who I, I loved Landon Roberts coming out of Houston, but you can watch the tape, and he's not that good in coverage right now. He's just a downhill run defender, and... You know, he's not as versatile as Collins was, and I think that they should have just let him walk in the offseason, but whatever. I'm almost over it. I, I just can't believe they're going to be trusting Kyle Van Noy, Kyle Van freaking Noy, over Jamie Collins. It's just like the stupidest shit. Um, it, it, it actually makes me upset. <laughs> and Yeah, man, I feel really bad about your Super Bowl winning team, man. Yeah, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> Well, no, if we play Seattle again, that'll be uh, quite the showdown. I'm excited That's to play true. the New England-Seattle rematch Super Bowl where um, everyone, like, sweat drops at the end of the game because something crazy is going to happen. Um, yeah, man, there's so many hot techs are going to come from that game. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So I'm going to circle back to Chuck. Uh, are there any things that have really surprised you this year? Um... I didn't expect the Raiders to be this good this fast. I, I thought they were still like a year. Like I thought they were still a year from being this good, but that uh that offensive line is so dominant. Kelechi uh, Osmalley completely changed the look of their running game. You know, Derek Carr doesn't get touched. And he's back there trying to throw the ball. And their defense, while it was really really bad to start the season, they, they've quietly gotten. A little bit better, you know. They're, they're still pretty inconsistent, but Khalil Mack has come on. You know, they've got a nice find along the defensive line, and uh, Darius Slayton from Indiana. Carl Joseph has been excellent since he was put in the lineup. So, you know, they've got some pieces on defense. Um, I, I just didn't expect it all to come together, you know, this quickly, and, and I, I certainly didn't see them being seven and two, you know, coming out of their bye week. In one of the best divisions in football, that division is. Fantastic, too. It and is. Yeah, I mean, the big thing for me, I guess, with Oakland is I just think that their linebackers aren't very good. But if they can draft a linebacker next year, uh, they'll be in good shape. And there are some really, really good linebackers in this class. Like, I could see them ending up with a guy who I 
personally think should go higher than where Oakland's going to pick. But if they end up with like a Reuben Foster next year, I mean, it's set. That team's going to be good for a really, really long time. Um, ben, any surprises for you? Um, biggest surprise for me is probably these rookie quarterbacks. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't like even even though I had a first round grade on Paxton Lynch. Like as a whole, like, I wasn't very high on on this class, and I thought that Pax would just kind of come in and be okay as a rookie. And ironically, he hasn't even really played that much. And Wentz has definitely exceeded my expectations. I mean, he still hasn't been great, but like I said, he's been competent. He's had some really nice moments that that uh, give you a lot of hope for the future. And then, like, Dak has been a legitimate top 10 quarterback this season. I mean, not just, like, good for a rookie. He's just been good for an NFL quarterback. And then play from guys like like Cody Kessler has looked I mean, he's been competent for the Browns. He had he had a couple of games where he made some really impressive throws that I just didn't really expect him to make in the NFL. So it's kind of cool to see to see play from from the young guys like that. And I know Golf just got the starting job in St. Louis, so we'll see how that turns out with him. Yeah, I wasn't really high on him, but who knows? Maybe he can spark that offense like Case Keenum wasn't able to. But something about that seems iffy to me. And meanwhile, uh, Christian Hackenberg sits on the Jets bench behind Bryce Petty. <laughs> well, that was easy to predict. That's not surprising. Yeah, yeah. it's a little bit easy to predict. Um, no, I, I have to admit, when I was 10, I watched the Patriots in 2001, and I saw Drew Bledsoe get injured by Mo Lewis in Week 2, and then Tom Brady come in and take that starting job and not give it up. And I see a lot of similarities with Dak and Romo. I... Bledsoe actually made it further in the playoffs than Romo did. People forget that. He made the Super Bowl in 1996, and he had just been signed to a pretty large contract. So there was some controversy when he came back healthy, who was going to get the starting job in New England. But I think Dak is really, really legit. He made some great throws in that Pittsburgh game. Granted, the Steelers don't have a great defense, but I I really like what I've seen, and that team is really, really good. So... There will definitely be one to watch. Kessler has also been a nice surprise. And I think Wentz has shown that he has great, great tangible material. And we know he's really competitive. So it'll just be interesting to see how he evolves. There was a point in Derek Carr's rookie year when he beat John, when he beat Jim Harbaugh's 49ers as a rookie with the Raiders. And it was an upset win. And that was a turning point for him, I believe, as a rookie where he ended up winning, I believe, the rest of, if not most of the remainder of his games as a Raider after he just had a little bit of a slump. I think if Wentz has that moment, there's a lot of positivity to be had because look how Carr has evolved well, since then. It's crazy because, um, well, funny correlation is they both had the same quarterback coach their rookie year with uh, uh, John DeFleur. I, I don't even want to try to say his name, but same quarterback coach. And uh, the way that Wentz has performed against, like, the better teams, you know, against the Vikings, against the Falcons, against the Steelers, um, has really been – I mean, he's kind of come up in the clutch when the team has needed him, uh, despite making mistakes. Oh, hold up. Sorry, I have to cut you off. We have live breaking news on this podcast. What? Um, What's going on, man? The Steelers uh, – nope, not the Steelers. The Seattle Seahawks have just waived Christine Michael. Oh, that's not breaking, man. That that's not like... breaking news. I, I just saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Wait, when did this happen? This happened like two hours ago. All right. Well, not breaking news then. Uh, I've been very busy today. But what, can we talk about that for like a hot second? Because I'm pretty surprised by that. 
Chris and Michael. Vikings, Vikings are going to pick him up, and he's going to run right in the nose tackles. It's not going to be anything. <laughs> Chris and Michael is is like Dor- the Doral Green Beckham of running backs without the without being a shithead. Without being a shithead. I mean, legitimately, Chris and Michael has been su- supposed to break out since I was going to be a junior in high school. Like, it was, like, always, like, even when he was at a and it was like, oh, well, this is the year that Chris and Michael takes over. And then he blew up the combine, and the Seahawks drafted him in the second round. It's like, oh, he's going to be the heir apparent to Marshawn Lynch, and then that never happened. Then he went to the Cowboys. Oh, behind that line, he's going to run for so many yards. Didn't happen. Then went back to the Seahawks. Oh, this is the year. Didn't happen. He started this well, year. He, 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 he did, did, did not he, play. He, because he did, but then he lost he, snaps to, to pro only, size. Yeah, because he got hurt. Yeah, but it wasn't because he lost snaps. It was because he got hurt. And process is good, by the way. I, really I, I know, but I mean, like they saw him as being expendable. I mean, that should say yeah. something. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm I think something else is going on there because you I, can't I, tell I, me I he's it. he's not. You can't tell me he's not better than Alex Collins or Tremaine Pope. So yeah, Pope I, yeah has, that, that's what that's what I'm thinking too. I, I don't really see him beating out Alex Collins or Tremaine Pope if it's just about the ability to play running back. Well, we know that he had some issues with Sumlins. Maybe there's a coaching problem we don't know about. But, uh, yeah, I'm surprised by that. So that was your breaking news two hours after the news actually broke and days after the news actually broke for people listening to this. So that was funny. Um, Arif, quick surprise for you. Uh, yeah, I guess it's just the Cowboys being good. And it's not just because, like, Dak Prescott has been, like, uh, a surprise. I mean, because it's a surprise. I wasn't following quarterbacks too closely in the draft. But, I mean, like, I – was following closely enough to know that Prescott was like supposed to be like developmental or whatever, uh, and so the Cowboys being good is surprising, and not just because he's good. Although I think that's the the primary reason, it's that the defense is like really put it together. They don't really have a packed rush. It required sort of a revival of Morris Claiborne. Sean Lee is kind of reasserting himself as like healthy, I guess. Uh, and like they don't have like massive liabilities at safety. I, I don't really know what's going on there, but. The defense is, like, doing its job, and so that's a big part of the reason that, like, the Cowboys, uh, I think they have the best record in the NFC. So uh, that's uh, that, that's a big surprise to me. I think I'm a little surprised also, I guess, by the Eagles and the Falcons, uh, you know, being as good as they are. Uh, I, I was I kind of thought that it would take another year for the Eagles' defense to put it together because I, I did really trust that defensive line, but I didn't really trust uh, what was happening with the cornerbacks. I liked the linebackers. I guess they're a problem now. Um, but the secondary has been pretty good. And the Falcons, you know, I didn't really – I mean, the offense wasn't supposed to be that good. So it, everything is a little bit surprising to me uh, from that perspective. And I think the NFC West overall has been just, like, massively surprising. Cardinals supposed to be better. Seahawks supposed to be better. Uh, Rams supposed to be worse. I'm not really sure what to make. The of Rams them. are they, well on their way to seven and nine. They are on the they, path. They are, but like they, they were Hard like kind stink, of, man. They were like fated to be like worse than that before the season, and it's just like the hand of destiny put them back on seven and nine. And yeah, the Cardinals were awful. Uh, 49ers are about as good as I expected, though. So there's that. <laughs> one team that surprised me a little bit, especially in recent weeks, and granted, they have not played great teams. Tennessee's offense has been legitimately oh, yeah, fun to watch recently. Yeah, and I, Fuck DeMarco Murray. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> legitimately fun to watch. And DeMarco Murray has had a really good year. And Mariota, uh, I know we had a really tough start to the year, but uh, there are some dimes that he was throwing against Green Bay. And granted, Green Bay's defense, again, bad. But, 
Yeah, I, I really like them. I'm surprised that that offense is humming so well, considering how skeptical we all were about that coaching staff. You know, there's an alternate universe where Marcus Mariota and DeMarco Murray are both Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't have the keen mind of Mike Malarkey running it. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> so I, I want to end this segment off with a little bit of draft stuff. Um <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> Heavy size. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of draft stuff. Um, <laughs> we are getting closer, and I, I want to hear, are there any takes to be had right now? Are there any things I that you want to get I can't have takes I don't have chest? a first-round pick. God damn it. <laughs> you have Sam Bradford, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, other than Arif, Chuck, do you have any takes that you just want to get off your chest right now? Uh, No, not really. I, I I've... I've not watched like like I've barely watched like any draft breakdown stuff or anything like that. I've just been watching like live college football. I haven't really gone back yet. All right, Ben. Uh, Corey Davis is really good, and he's better than Mike Williams. And I have other hot takes, but that's that's Dude, my all, all the takes I've seen about Mike Williams are how he's actually bad. But like all of the guys are ranking him as wide receiver one. I've, what's the deal? Um, I think that people going to get caught up in – I mean, it's like the whole variance argument all over again. But the reality is, I think, with Mike Williams is that, you know, he, he suffered a pretty scary neck injury a year and a half ago. And I think it takes a lot mentally to come back from that and play with a ton of confidence and, you know, consistently put your body on the line. But when it comes down to it, I mean, Williams is really good. And he, he makes a lot of really impressive, like, splash plays – as a possession receiver with, you know, with the ball in the air, but also he's a good athlete after the catch. But, you know, comparing him to other guys, Corey Davis, you know, the the Western Michigan receiver, he does it all. I mean, he's like, he's the type of, I think he's the receiver that a lot of people are kind of talking Mike Williams up to be, where he's like an awesome route runner, and despite the fact that he's a much bigger receiver, you know, he can dominate the catch point, and also he can create yards after the catch. I mean, he really does it all, and, and it's, it's, he also it's, wears Moss's number. I just got to point that out, man. He also might have a better quarterback throwing to him than that, Williams has right now throwing to him at Clemson. Well, that's that's a hot take. Um, I really <laughs> like Deshaun Watson. Down, so. Well, there was a really hot take I saw on Lance Zerline's timeline today about how GMs don't think that Deshaun Watson's going to go in the first round of the draft. I mean, GMs can go fuck themselves. They drafted <laughs> Christian Hackenberg in the second round, so like, who gives a shit? I actually. Him? Yeah, I don't have a hot take on Watson right now. I still have to watch it. My hot take is on Michigan's Jabril Peppers, who I was talking with Eric Stoner about today and a bunch of other people. And he's just not a very good linebacker right now. And I don't know if he's a very good safety either because he's so tentative. He doesn't like tackling. And I'm not sure that's something that you can coach into someone. I still think that he's athletic enough to maybe play that position at the next level if he has a really good coach. But, like, for me – when I look at a player, I'm thinking of what is their best plus trait after just athletic ability because we know he's a great athlete. And for me, it's his vision when he has the ball in his hands. And you see it on the punt returns. You see it when he runs option. You see it when he has the ball in his hands in general. I think that Jerome Pepper should be a running back at the next level. He's a 205-pound running back, man. Why not? Like, it happens, but, like... They have Adrian... It, it, would you draft a, a 200-pound converted running back in the first round? I think that that's the argument against it, of course, but I I see a bust maybe if he doesn't switch positions. I mean, he's – I mean, he's 
I don't know. I think he should probably be a, a safety. I, I, I actually, I think he's better. Physical than, though. You don't think so? I, I, I mean, I've seen, I've seen him make some really. I mean, he he fights through contact. I, I mean, I watched him against uh, the Colorado game was really impressive. The the Michigan State game, he made some play like some impressive plays like behind the line of scrimmage too. I mean, I think that you don't want him. You don't really want him at linebacker just because of his size. But I think that athleticism and his ability to kind of fire downhill is. He might actually be an edge safety. Oh my god! Ugh. I'm getting out. <laughs> getting good. We can't invent positions. <laughs> Literally, it's just, not, it's just nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I mean, we'll see. I, I think we'll, we'll see what's been happening with him. Maybe he'll show some more physicality in other games that I've watched. But thus far, like I was comparing him to like Ruben Foster. Um, this dude from North Dakota State who got injured apparently, and he's crazy good. Carson Wentz? No, this linebacker. <laughs> well, Carson Wentz could play linebacker. I don't know. Um, and even like Stephen Taylor from Houston is someone who I think could be a really, really good pro. And you watch him and the way he attacks ball carriers versus Peppers, and it's night and day. Well, the thing that was interesting, um, like, and people kind of bring up Deion Buchanan a lot with Peppers, and like. When Buchanan was coming out of Washington State, and maybe this was like a hot take that I had, like I thought, I always thought that Buchanan was a much better free safety, like a deep safety, than he was coming up against the run. Um, but you know, Arizona saw a guy who had like a six-one frame and long arms and everything like that. It's like, okay, well, we're gonna play this guy at linebacker, and they, you know, they bulked, bulked him up, and now he's a linebacker. He's like a solid linebacker. So I guess it. I mean, it really just depends on the team. It depends on the vision. Um, because we sometimes we just don't know what these guys like. They can change their bodies to the next level, and, and you know NFL coaches also do really stupid shit at the same time. So, Dude, what's the deal with the uh, Ohio State guy, what, McMillian? He's Does slow. He? Oh, damn! I don't think. I mean, I was watching him, and I didn't see great explosiveness. I, I think he he reminded me of David Harris on the Jets. That was my comparison for him. That's I like David. That's a, that's a and solid I player. Think that he's a good player. I just don't think he's like high first round pick. Yeah, I mean he, he's he's a guy that you're gonna. I mean, I could see him being like a top fifty pick. Um, yeah, for sure. Like inside linebacker in a three four and be really productive. Yeah. But I mean, he's not. You're not drafting Patrick Willis or anything. I mean, if, you, I mean, if there's a if there's a Patrick Willis or or like a Bobby Wagner in this draft, it's probably Ruben Foster. I mean, he's the guy who has the athleticism, the size, the you know, the range, the vision, all that all that good stuff. And this class is fantastic for linebackers because we haven't even talked about Zach Cunningham from Vanderbilt, and he's sure. someone and who Gerard I think Davis. is really good. I'm not the hey, biggest Gerard, fan of Gerard Davis. Davis. I'm not yep. the biggest fan of Gerard I, I, Davis. Yeah, I, I, like, oh, I like Davis a lot, but I know Chuck thinks he's really bad. Yeah, well, just from what I saw last year, he's I don't know, he's just uh, not that he, smart. He had like I, I haven't seen him this year though. Oh, he's been he's been really impressive this year. Outside of the, the Georgia game, which was just disgusting football. Yeah, I remember I watched him. I didn't like him that much, but maybe I just need to watch a different game. So for now, I'm on Chuck's side of the ledger there. I don't watch SEC East games because I I like myself. They're awful. Yeah. They're just that's probably it's smart. Um, speaking of the SEC East, we're going to go to the. Society portion of this podcast now oh, to talk about something else, um, not very good. Other so, egregious things that other, happened in the so South. So for those who are listening right now, we're gonna talk about the election. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna, we we all have things to say about the election. 
I don't know. I guess I'll start with Ben. That was a nice little leeway, though, because you talk about SEC football. It's like, not only is Florida bad at football, but they're also <laughs> bad at electing presidential fucking candidates. Yeah. Oh, um, God. So, I guess, what was your what was your Tuesday like? What What was my Tuesday like? Well, my Tuesday... Started out okay. Um, I was kind of upset because I was walking around and everyone had stickers and I voted absentee for Pennsylvania and uh, I didn't get a sticker from Pennsylvania and I was really upset about that. Um, so in, in hindsight, that's a, that was a stupid thing to be upset about given everything else that happened that night. <laughs> um, fuck a sticker. Um, and uh, so I, I had some friends over Tuesday night to, to watch the election with me, um, which was... Another mistake, um, and I stayed up till 3, I stayed up till 4 a.m. watching election coverage because I hate myself, and, um, yeah, and I ended up, you know, just like the, me and these, um, these two other girls, we just all, you know, we just kind of ended up all crying together, uh, and it was scary, and like, I don't want to get too much into the personal lives of these people I was with, but both of them were of dispositions where, they would have been, they would have been, they are massively impacted by the rhetoric of a Trump presidency. And it's, you know, it's terrifying. And, um, I got a text from my little sister who, um, you know, she's, she, my little sister is the president of the gay straight Alliance in a high school in a County that voted red and they were the only county to go red in southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and I got a text from my little sister at 3.30 in the morning saying, I am so scared right now. And, like, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know what to do. Like, I was so sad and mad in that moment. Um, and, like, all I wanted to do was, like, hug my little sister. And I couldn't. I had to go to bed. I had to, you know, I, like, I couldn't. And the next day... Um, I met with my cast because we were in the, right in the middle of a, a show, a run for a show. And the cast, I mean, just to kind of give you an idea of the, the diversity in the cast, I'm the only white straight guy in the cast. And my co-star is, is, she's an Ecuadorian student who's, she's on a trans, she's on a, you know, an educational visa to study at NYU. And, and like, everyone was so scared. And, 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 and it gave me, it made me realize that the people, I mean, a lot of people voted for Trump because they don't see these people. You know, they live, they live in, in insulated environments where, I mean, it's just other white people and it's just other, you know, straight Christian people. And, and when, when a guy like Donald Trump says, oh, well, you know, blacks live in hell, Mexicans are rapists, you know, and, you know, a guy like Mike Pence says, you know, we can electrocute people into being straight. Well, there are people who live in the middle of nowhere who don't know better and don't actually know people who'd be affected like this, and they vote for that man because they think that that man knows better because he has a lot of money and he has his name on buildings and stuff. But, you know, when you actually live with people who who are affected by this rhetoric and you actually, you know, it changes your life. It changes your perspective. I mean, I grew up in a farm town in Pennsylvania, and moving to New York – totally changed my views of the world. Um, and I'm not saying, oh, well, you know, everybody needs to uh, move to New York. What I'm saying is we just need to, we just need to teach compassion in this country. We need to teach love. We need to teach understanding because 
everybody's coming from a different disposition and, and, uh, you know, crying with my cast members, you know, like literally holding hands and crying with my cast members. Um, and afterwards going to, to protest with a lot of them and protest with a lot of NYU students and a lot of people in the city. Um, and just to be clear, these protests were not protesting the outcome of the election. You know, we recognize that the Electoral College elected Donald Trump to be the president of the United States. These protests, or at least the ones in New York, are saying, you're our president now. If you come for us, we were all standing together. You're not going to hurt one of us without going through all of us. That's what these protests are about. And, you know, ever ever since Tuesday, I mean, I realized the question was just, how is my Tuesday? But really, my Tuesday has not ended yet. Yeah. Um, and... And it's just been, it's like the last week has just been reconciling with all of these horrible realizations or maybe not realizations because I've known a lot about this stuff about my country, but realizations about people who are close to me and realizations about the left and the right. And Oh my God, it's just been a fucking mess. Um, Chuck, do you want to give your thoughts? Uh... Yeah, so my Tuesday, you know, pretty normal Tuesday, woke up, went to class, you know, went to the gym, uh, went to go vote. It was a nice, easy, smooth process. Took about, you know, 30, 45 minutes. I was in and out. Um, I live in Maryland, so, you know, I mean, the area I live in is pretty liberal. Not, I, I mean, I, I've seen like maybe like two or three Trump, Pence posters throughout this entire cycle. It's just, it's really just not like where I am. And, uh, I got home, you know, started to unwind, turn on the TV. Um, and I, I started off by looking at the Vegas odds for, uh, for the presidential election. And at, at first, you know, it started off with like, I think Hillary was, uh, it was Hillary minus 800 to start off with. So, so for, pe- for people who don't gamble, that's just – It's overwhelming. It, it's, it's overwhelming odds for Hillary to win. So, you know, I was feeling pretty good. You know, uh, I was watching the coverage. And then I started getting a little bit nervous as the Florida results started to come in. And as the Florida results started to come in, the odds quickly dropped back towards about even for uh, Hillary and Trump to win. And once Trump was announced for Florida, the odds start to shift in favor of Trump winning the presidency. And that's that's really when I started to get worried. And, you know, after you know she lost Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, just to see – all the results come in at once and just kind of see the big bigotry and racism and homophobia, all that stuff, just to see it come across in numbers in a few hours while you're watching the TV was, it's pretty haunting. Um, I guess because I don't really uh, surround myself with people like that. I don't talk to people like that. I, I, I guess I was kind of naive and a little bit unaware that, you know, this was even a, a real possibility, but, you know, when he, when, uh, he made his uh, acceptance speech at like almost 4 o'clock in the morning, I was just stunned, heartbroken, pretty hard to 
get up the next day. Yeah, I know you're much the same way for me as well. Uh, Arif, I kind of want to add on the question because I know you're you're from Minnesota, the one state in that area that actually stayed blue unless they finally called Michigan, which I don't know if they did. Um, and but I know you're also from North Dakota, so maybe give us some details on your Tuesday, but then also could you expand on why you think maybe there was a blind spot for uh, some of the things that he was saying in that region? Do you buy some of the narratives that it was just an ignorant thing, or do you think it was something else? I mean, I have so many thoughts about, like, the nature of, like, what led uh, to Trump's eventual victory. And the thing is, like, I'm not actually very proud of Minnesota because they voted, uh, I think, only plus 1.5 last time I checked in favor of, of Hillary. And in previous elections, they've been plus 7 and plus 9 uh, for the Democrats. In fact, uh, so they were considered a swing state back at the beginning of the uh, 2008 election cycle, and they were taken sort of out of the swing state rotation. So the idea that they've come back to becoming a swing state doesn't make me any happier. So I'm not particularly proud of Minnesota. Um, I will say that living here for the last couple of years uh, has really deadened my ability to sort of like interact with or sort of figure out a lot of rural voting patterns. I do have a lot of like friends on Facebook who – uh, who are like from Grand Forks and have moved to even more rural areas than that. So it's not like I don't have like, you know, a lot of contact, but like I live in the Twin Cities, which was overwhelmingly blue. In fact, we elected, I think, the nation's first uh, Somali Muslim immigrant to uh, to our local legislature. So it's a very different area in the Twin Cities than it is outside the Twin Cities. And of course, they, you know, reelected Keith Ellison. So it's like, it's a very, like, yeah, brown people go, like, area. Like, it's very pro that. And it's not, you know, a lot of what's been happening sort of in in the rest of the Midwest and especially the rural Midwest. So I will say that. Um, as far as, like, how my Tuesday went, like, I think I, I approached Tuesday with the same level of confidence that, you know, uh, that the two of you did, uh, that, that, that Ben and Chuck did. It's I was, I was absolutely confident. I was so confident that I thought 538 screwed up by saying there was a 30 percent chance that that trump could win because all of these other models you know they were giving good methodological reasons too like i didn't think i was like reading into what i wanted to see i think that you know i was taking a look at what they were saying and i thought that they were making a little bit more sense about why things would be the way that they would be uh you know obviously i think 538 a lot of people say that they weren't right but i think they did end up being right i think that you know the, the probability was was entrenched in the way that undecideds broke and undecideds uh, broke in the last two elections for Obama, and this time the undecideds uh, didn't break down the middle. Uh, they actually broke towards Trump. So that was actually sort of a probability thing, and calling it 30 percent I think means that they were right, even though most people say would say they weren't. Um, but yeah, I was, I was super confident going in, and so – and I think that's the worst thing about it. Like it wasn't that I, I trusted like the country to not be racist or anything like that. It's more that I trusted like enough of the country to care about you know this constellation of factors that should point, uh, in my opinion, towards Hillary, and not just you know uh, you know caring about uh, you know like brown people or not being racist or not being sexist, but I mean like a whole host of other factors, like like having like an intellectually capable president, which I think maybe was a little bit naive of me because they did vote a president who was anti-intellectual for two terms prior to Obama, so I guess. You know, I, I shouldn't have been that faithful to it, but, but my biggest problem was that I just didn't have time to prepare for for the for what happened because I was so absolutely certain. Like in my head, going into the day, you know, my thought was, 
I really hope that when Hillary wins, it's by a landslide so that there's like a huge repudiation of everything that Donald Trump stands for and not that she wins by a little bit or, or just enough. I want her to win by like an overwhelming margin. That was the thought in my head going into the day. It didn't really cross my mind that much that Trump could win, and so it hit me like a sledgehammer sort of when it happened, especially because I was like nodding in and out of, of sleep. Uh, you know, as the election results were pouring in, because I, you know, pulled an all-nighter the night before, and I didn't really expect to need to stay awake, you know, during the election. Uh, and so uh, I would wake up and like I was I was tracking on on the New York Times' upshot the probability model, and every time I woke up, Donald Trump was like closer to winning. Uh, and then the last time I woke up, uh, you know, I got a bunch of texts from my girlfriend who was out, you know, doing election parties and stuff with friends. And she was just like frantically texting me like, oh, my God, Trump won. Oh, my God, it's awful. You know, the world is like on fire or whatever. And it was it was the most depressing moment that I've had in a long time. And I like have like I, I, I have depression. Like it's like not like I have like some mental health issues. And so to say that it was the most depressing thing that's happened to me in a long time, I think like that carries a lot of weight because uh, it wasn't just that like, hey, the country decided to endorse all of these awful things, which was a really big part of it. But it was also like my faith in a lot of these models was shaken. You, you guys know me that I'm like a really big numbers dude. And so it really kind of upset me that like the reality that I was given was incorrect. But, you know, it also was the case that like it's not so much that people were necessarily overtly racist, but rather they were implicitly racist because it was not disqualifying them. I think there's that Daily Show clip going around from uh, Hassan Minaj about like the difference, which is that it's not necessarily that you want to kill brown people or whatever, or that you want to deny them like a, essential humanity. It's that you don't care if they are, and like that is like dehumanizing in its own way. Like in some sense, like hate kind of recognizes that you have agency, but like not caring at all is like its own thing that like really is disturbing to me because it kind of like denies people like me uh you know like agency within the world like like we're not like important enough to consider when you make like these enormous massive decisions and like i understand like there's all of these other factors at play that like go into like a voting decision but like it's not sometimes it's not just like a list of pros and cons it's not like Hey, you know, I think that, you know, the climate regulations are really important, but I don't really like the way that they like cozy up to Wall Street. And I think that those have like really big implications and you have to weigh those two. It's not that it's does this person want to fundamentally deny the humanity of a lot of people in and outside of the United States versus like, is he going to try and revive like, you know, some manufacturing jobs? And, it, and it's definitely some and not all uh, manufacturing jobs. And and like all of those, it's just it, and it really took me out. I. I didn't I didn't publish any content, not even podcasts that week. Like I was just I was done and I, I just had to like take a moment. I'm a lot better now because of that. I think if I had sort of tried powered through and written some articles, I, I think I would have been worse. Um, and I got a lot more political on Facebook than I usually do. Uh, and that was pretty helpful. Uh, and I've got like sort of a lot more like coherent thoughts about like the way the election played out and what happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was that was my Tuesday. And I think that I, I don't think it's actually a coming com, come to Jesus moment for Democrats, like the way a lot of people think it is. But I do think uh, there are some like important things about about the way that polls are modeled, because I think 
the biggest problem was that the data-driven portion of Hillary's campaign was fed bad data, and it wasn't that the polls were wrong when they asked people who they were going to vote for, but the polls were wrong when they weighted their likely voter models, and that like drove her decision to uh, you know not go to Wisconsin, for example, and you know those those all played like pretty significant roles. And part of it also, there's a really really good article about this uh, and a thread about this too. Um, people who were supporting Trump were taught to not publicize that they were supporting Trump. I, I don't actually – I don't think that that played a significant role. I think that uh, that's true, but the data on that is actually not very good. Like it, it, it's like uh, it's a – like the article you're talking about is like a collection of, of tweets about this, right? And it talks about like a lot of the form and message boards that – No, I saw another article too. I don't remember where it was, but yeah, I did oh. see that tweet storm as well. Yeah, it's I, – I don't think the data supports that. I think that that's true. I don't think it had – as big of an effect on polls, especially because like a lot of the, a lot of the turnout that was in favor of Trump, you know, uh, you know, if people want to call it the rural white working class, which is like fine by me. Uh, they're not big four chanters. So like, I, I don't, I don't think that played as big a role as some people are saying. I don't think there was a, uh, what, what's it called again? I was talking about it a lot, whatever Bradley effect. That's it. Uh, I don't think there was as big of a Bradley effect as people. I think really, if you reweighted it by likely, vo- if you reweighted the likely voter model, the "who are you voting for" question, I think, still was right. It was just the model weighting was wrong. Well, I think part of it also, though, was that um, along with the white working class, there was also definitely a younger demographic that did end up breaking for Trump. I think that uh, Hillary got ten points less than Obama in terms of the millennial vote too. So. Uh, yeah, this this really, really weird effect. I was the two things that surprised me the most, and I'm not going to tell my Tuesday story. I was just was very confident, and then I ended up very sad for a few days. Um, the two things that surprised me, though, were, one, uh, I guess, as you were saying, how incorrect everybody was, at least in terms of the mainstream media, but even in terms of, like, the right-wing media. I didn't think there, there were that many... Uh, sites that were predicting a Trump win, especially this uh, larger win that he ended up having. Internally, and, Trump's team thought they only had a 30% chance of winning, so, yeah. you know, nobody really saw this coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just surprised. But that's why Trump it, didn't have a transition team together. And, and even, to win. Yeah, and even to the point where, like, you heard all these things about record early voting turnout and, re- and really, really long lines at the polls, and then all of a sudden... The poll lines aren't as long as we thought they were because turnout was much, much lower than in uh, the past few years. So that was definitely something that surprised me. And the other thing that really is is the thing that scares me a little bit more is how many objective facts were ignored when people stepped into the ballot box and voted for Trump. Um, This is something that we saw with PolitiFact, we saw multiple debates where this guy would just lie on a daily basis. Like, he would just go up and tell lies, and he would go on the internet and tell lies. And he would get corrected, but it just bounced off him. Every single bullet bounced off him like Teflon, and it's just amazing to me that people didn't see that and think about our country's reputation and be like, this is the guy who's now going to represent our country, this dude who all he does is lie to people. And it really, really makes me disturbed that people would support that. Um, it's interesting. Uh, last summer, so summer after my freshman year of college, um, 
I was in the car. I was with my grandfather, uh, and we were listening to the radio. And like, you know, my, most of my family is, a, is a conservative, and um, they were talking about Trump's. Uh, you know, Trump had already been running, and and, uh, and Trump's comments on John McCain. You know, basically saying, you know, he's not a war hero because he he got captured. I like the guys who don't get captured. And my grandfather said, you know, this is the end of the line for Donald Trump. There's no way that Republicans let him speak. Yeah, I thought that was it for him too. Yeah, and I said, I said to him, I said, I think you underestimate how many how much Republicans hate Hillary Clinton. And he he just kind of laughed that off. And then like. That rung true a year and a half later, and I even kind of forgot about that too. You know, during during the election, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like center center right people have to be looking at Donald Trump and be looking at Hillary Clinton and looking at the policies and seeing that they're probably closer to Hillary Clinton than they are to Donald Trump, and you know, just common decency. And it really, I mean, this election, and maybe this is oversimplifying it, but this election really came down to the fact that there is a narrative that Hillary Clinton is not trustworthy and Hillary Clinton is like a fundamentally bad person. And I'm not saying I agree with that narrative at all, but that is the narrative that won. You know, you had, you had story, I mean, you had the, the rape accusations, you had the video of Trump bragging about rape, you had calling people PTSD weak, you had him saying that he was going to torture family members of, of suspected terrorists. I mean, there there is a laundry list that I could sit here for hours and go on and on and on about, but what won out was the narrative that Hillary Clinton was untrustworthy. And that blows my mind. It, it blows my mind and it, it upsets me beyond belief because do I think it's very gendered? Yes, absolutely. I think it's totally gendered. I think that um, there is a large part of this this country that is still male dominant, and that's why or white male dominant, and that's why you saw such. I mean, I think the numbers were seventy two percent of white males voted for Donald Trump, and, and something like like sixty sixty percent of white women voted for Donald Trump, and and it really speaks to the fact that. That they could like that white Republicans or white you know like they or white men just could not bring themselves to vote for uh, vote a woman into power and any excuse onto why she's untrustworthy or why she doesn't smile enough or the same bullshit that you have you hear at such a micro level um, in terms of sexism you know reproduced itself during an election it it just it blows my mind and maybe it doesn't surprise me but it upsets me beyond belief because just the ignorance to, towards you know i talked to a person i'm not going to name who i talked to a person who voted for donald trump and i said why did you vote for donald trump and they said well i have a list of priorities for candidates you know you know hillary won me over with you know she had she yeah i agreed with her on gay rights i probably would have supported her supreme court nomination more I thought that she was more experienced for the position, but when it came down to it, I trusted Donald Trump on the economy. I trusted I trusted his opinion on on quote unquote regulations, and I trusted his his quote unquote plan on terrorism. And you know, plan exactly. His, okay, his plan was the exact opposite. Like it was yeah, exactly. That, and my point is that these these center these center Republicans, these center right Republic or center right people. 
you know, have say, oh, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal. But when it comes down to it, they are putting their fiscal conservatism over their social liberalism. So their social liberalism doesn't mean dick. And it's like, like, and, and maybe I'm kind of getting beyond the point of this conversation in terms of talking about Donald Trump. But when you talk about uh, political, the political spectrum in America, there there are people who just pretend to care about social issues. You know, they're saying, oh, well, if somebody asks me about social issues, I'll say, yeah, I'm pro-gay marriage. Or, yeah, you know, I, I think that. I think that a woman should have a right to choose. But if a candidate says, I don't believe a woman should have the right to choose, I don't believe that, that gays have a fundamental right to, to marriage equality, but I believe in deregulating the housing housing market, well, fuck yeah, I'm going to vote for that guy because money is important. And it's so fucking ridiculous. You can't claim to be to be a social progressive if you're putting, if you're putting fiscal policy over that. Well, okay, so there's a couple of things I want to, like, tag on to this. The first is about, like, the way that people uh, were able to, like, attach a narrative to, to the candidates. There's a really good piece on Vox about – it's it essentially just a Gallup uh, word cloud about the way that narratives were translated across uh, different media. And the problem is that Mr. Uh, is that uh, Donald Trump had a literal Mr. Burns scenario where there were so many things – to like complain about or to talk about or negatives on Donald Trump that like there's no one clear message that like came through and the word cloud is like really fascinating because like uh, it, it's um, it, it goes to like what people like basically learned from the media so the media like their job isn't necessarily to construct a voting narrative for anybody but like as a collective that's what they do and so when they when they talked about Hillary they were actually I mean there was just not that many negatives to talk about except the email, and so any negative covers that they had was entirely the email. And so in the word cloud, by far the biggest word, by far, not even close, is the word email, right? And so that's what people heard from the media, emails. And then when you take a look at the Donald Trump word cloud, there's a bunch of stuff that's like negative, right? There's like, oh, he's a racist, he's a sexist, you know, grab her by the pussy, that sort of stuff. And that's like those words are all small because they're all in relation to each other. And as a result, the biggest words that come out of this word cloud for Donald Trump are the words speech, president, campaign, and immigration. And so uh, there was no like clear narrative. And it, again, it's not like the media's job to construct a voting narrative, but they didn't create an output that people could digest for who Donald Trump was. And I'm not saying like People should be able to like figure it out in the same way, like they should. But like, as a result of the way like uh, you know the business of media works and the way that human cognition works, there was like a failure at multiple levels to just figure out what to do with a candidate that has so many of these problems. I mean, like you know, we all saw as like Politifact, like eighty three percent of his tested statements were like lies, and that Hillary was. Uh, the most honest politician we've seen in the last like four or five election cycles, which is kind of mind-boggling again because like the narrative coming out is that she's untrustworthy, and the reason for that is this email scandal, which is somewhat complicated and definitely nuanced, and is certainly not like as it's not as bad. It's like it's like a lot of people think about it in terms of like procedural problems, or a lot of people think about it in terms of like national security issues and confidentiality. But it's really a procedural problem in that. The reason that she wasn't prosecuted is because there's literally no way that you could prove intent, uh, and that was like the law that they were going to prosecute under. There's another law about negligence, but they couldn't actually prove that without indicting like a 
half of uh, the previous administrations. And so, uh, I mean, because, like, George Bush had a private email server and, like, you know, Colin Powell and a bunch of, like, uh, previous administrations and, and some, some within the Obama administration too. But, like, the, the problems were just not explained well because you can't package that. You can't package that in, like, a three-word thing. Like, it's, it's – you, you can't just say – uh, you know, and, and transmit a message really clearly across in like a Twitter thread or, or in just one tweet that like here are the complicated, nuanced things that are coming across about this email problem. So I want to take that onto onto your thing is like that we've seen some evidence to the point like that there was no narrative about Donald Trump uh, and that there were as many positive narratives that were as dominant in people's minds as there were negative narratives. Uh, and the other thing about like social liberals and fiscal conservatives sort of combined together is that I really don't have a lot of respect for those people. Um, not just because like, it's clear that your social liberalism is not an identity you can claim because you're never voting for it. Uh, and you're never like effectively making change in, in that direction. Uh, they also like, don't care about that stuff anyway, because a lot of the housing regulations that Donald Trump would like get rid of, uh, and this, and this exists across all of the departments that like he's attempting to make appointments to, uh, are regulations that like preserve marginalized and protected classes. So like housing regulations against housing discrimination, for example, would go away. And that opens up the market and that's like, great, there's more market. Like who gives a shit if, if, if like, like black people can't rent homes because people are racist. Like that's like that's like a huge like tie-in to a lot of this fiscal policy because the fiscal policy has like far-reaching social ramifications, and the ones they want to target are often not the ones that have the biggest drain on the budget. Things like the military uh, or or entitlements like Medicare or Social Security, but they're often ones designed specifically to protect marginalized classes. Uh, not because they cost the most money, but because those are the easiest ones to make cuts with the least amount of resistance because there's not a lot of people speaking for them. So I don't have a lot of respect for them. So those those are my thoughts on the two things you said. I also have like a million other thoughts, but I should let other people speak. I mean this this podcast could be a, uh, a college class at this point. We should be charging admission. No, yeah. We should just talk about politics. Um, no, I want to turn it back to like Chuck. Um, so in terms of, I guess, your opinions on what your thoughts are on people who ended up voting either third party or voting for Trump? Because I know that there are a lot of people who voted third party and even in battleground states as well to quote unquote clear their conscience. Oh God. oh, God. I mean, I just think that's bullshit, but you know, you can do what you want to do. I mean, the third party thing with me is if I know that, like, say I'm a Gary Johnson supporter, going in, I know for a fact he's not going to win. Like, I just know for a fact. I, I mean, I don't even get, like, why do you waste your time to get up and go in the boat for, I mean, but I mean, there's, <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like, a, a vote for Harambe or Hennessy is the same thing as a vote for Gary Johnson. Man, so, I, I mean, I, I, what's the point? Right uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, there's other stuff on the ballot, too, which is, which is important. Uh, but, I mean, people who vote for Trump, I mean, I, 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 I can't even, like begin to wrap my wrap my head around it because I, I mean I, I, maybe this is just me being you know paranoid black guy but like how, like how am I supposed to just go out in like public and I don't know just see white people and just be like oh that, that fucker definitely voted for Trump didn't he <laughs> <laughs> I could not get out of the house that much but when I have I've just been like that motherfucker probably voted for Trump. <laughs> 
in like like I, I, so I'm a black guy, you know. My I have a lot of family uh, down south in Atlanta, Mississippi, Tennessee. So you know, in in Chicago, where racism is certainly reared its ugly head. Um, so I mean, I'm not dumb. I know that it's out there, but just to see it all materialize in one night and just kind of get a sense of the numbers, you know, just to see that, you know, 50 million people voted for Donald Trump was pretty, pretty devastating. You know, I, I just stared at the TV till like 4 a.m. just, just dumbfounded trying to, trying to process it. And I mean, it's been almost a week and I still have not really processed what happened. Um, I mean, just to, I, I don't even really know where I'm going with this, but man, it's, 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 it's hard to trust people now because anyone, yeah, absolutely. Who voted, anyone who voted for Donald Trump is, you're an enemy to me automatically. For someone who was, who was, you know, in the past, he's, he said laziness is a trait in blacks and he refused to rent out his property to black people and everything he said about, you know, gay people and Muslim people and Mexicans. You know, if you're even just a half decent person, how could you? How would you vote for something like that, dude? Donald Trump has like been caught doing racist shit every single decade since the '70s. Like, there's like documented stuff in like in the '70s and the '80s and the '90s, and then obviously the 2000s and the 2010s. Like, everything. It's not just like something that happened in the '70s, which actually is still pretty significant because he had a lot of power. But like every, like it's not just like a couple of things. Right, it's a lot of things. It's like, a lot of things. A lot of things. And I mean, that, like, if, if you just took what he said, this election cycle, I mean, it's disgusting. And, and, you, and you combine that with what he said over the past forty years, like, how how like how did we get here? And, and the worst part to me is people like when when I tweet about Trump, and they they tell you, oh, you know, this is how we felt when Obama got elected. You'll get over it. I'm like. This isn't like, like this isn't like Mitt Romney winning the election. This isn't even like George Bush winning the election. Like, yeah, this is not normal at all. Like we just we voted like a racist meme into office, and he's bringing really Rudy Giuliani and Newt Gingrich and Steve Bannon. Like, what, what the hell just happened? Dude, I have so many thoughts about his transition team and who he's gonna. You know, put into into particular roles, but like, yeah, Steve Bannon, like, what the hell, right? Like, <laughs> like, and like, so that, that's like the thing. So like, uh, one of the only things I've like written about this is uh, is the give him a chance meme. Like, Holy shit. like first of all, I don't have a choice. He got his chance, and now we're all going to suffer because of it. But like. The chance that he had, he is already ruined by like appointing like or by by naming like multiple like racist, sexist, uh, homophobic, transphobic people, uh, even like ableist phobic people. Which, by the way, Donald Trump is obviously one of them. He made fun of a disabled reporter on national TV uh, into into his transition team and, and, and into like uh, like cabinet positions. Like he had two sheriffs as his, uh, or he had one sheriff and one architect of, of one of the most racist laws in, in American history, in modern American history, uh, in, in for his Department of Homeland Security, the guy who crafted the SB 1070 bill, and Sheriff David Clark from Wisconsin, who thinks that Black Lives Matter is ISIS. Like, he, he's like, yeah, they're basically ISIS. In fact, they are ISIS. And then he accused Beyonce of, like, being a member of the KKK, 
which is like really ironic given how much stronger the KKK is now, I guess. Uh, and like, and those, and that's like the Department of Homeland Security. Those are the people that are going to be tapping my phones. Like, that's that's like who's there. And then you have like a climate denier as as the head of the EPA. Uh, the 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 jurist selection for the um for the, like his list of twenty uh, Supreme Court justices, all of them have expressed strong objections to to Roe v. Wade, like in their recent past, and strong objections to uh, to gay marriage. Even though like Trump said something about how it's settled law, like literally all they have to do is pass a test case. Uh, you know, through through Congress, probably in Kansas, denying the right uh, for uh, for people to marry, and they'll go all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, with two more justices, uh, like uh, like Myers uh, or William uh, William Myers, I think is his name, uh, William Pryor. That's it, William Pryor, uh, the guy who uh, voted uh, in favor of the sodomy bill in Texas in 2003. That guy uh, is one of the guys on the list, and like. The, that's the chance Donald Trump had, and those are the people that he is putting into ex, like extremely important roles in the government. And so, like any chance that I would have been able to give him, which again I don't have the choice to give him a chance, he gets it. But any chance I could have been able to give him is gone. Like his chief of staff runs an alt alt right racist website, and all of the people that he's appointing into these positions have enacted actual policy changes for racist reasons. In fact, one of those guys. Uh, one, one of the guys that's going to be in the DHS, not even one of the two that I mentioned, uh, was uh, w- was reprimanded by a judge in Arizona uh, for uh, for unfairly targeting Latinos, and then after that ruling was uh, w- was indicted by a judge again for unfairly targeting Latinos. Like it's a, these people are explicitly racist. There's no chance to give him. He's already used any chance that he could have had by naming a bunch of people who hate brown people and hate gay people and hate trans people into really important positions where they can decide policy to a greater degree than any president could. Yeah, and, and the, the thing worst part to me is it took six days for him to lose <laughs> all this right? Like, I mean, you know, like like you said, we're forced to give him a chance and like obviously I want him to succeed, but six days in from him winning the from him winning the election, and this is what we have to show for it. And this are, is this is awful. Are you keeping tabs on what's going on, with Mike Pence, right now? No, I'm, he won't. I'm he trying won't, to separate myself. He won't sign bit. a non-disclosure agreement with yeah, the transition yeah, the team. Oh, we actually, yeah, yeah. and he won't give up his private email server because it's being investigated for inappropriate use. Incredible, right? Oh, this, like you can't you can't write this shit. Like, <laughs> like you can't make. And the thing is with Steve Bannon, like Steve Bannon is an anti-Semite. He does not like Jewish people. He's made like he's made that clear. His website he's has made that clear. Jews. Yeah. What the hell? His his um the RJC, the Republican Jewish Committee, sent out a press release today. And, and I want to like I, I need to talk about this because I was forwarded this press release from a Republican Jew. Um, they 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 endorsed him. They said, "Oh, Steve Bannon is a great guy, and you know, there's no way that he could be an anti-Semite because we've hung out with him for years." Now, RJC, I'll say this to you: when Jared Kushner, who is Donald Trump's son-in-law, when Jared Kushner, who's uh, who's a, a devout Jew supposedly, although I would like to have a conversation with him about that, um, when when Jared Kushner 
advises Donald Trump, and this just came out on Politico, to not have Steve Bannon on his on his staff because Steve Bannon is quote unquote too incendiary. When Jared fucking Kushner says that, that means there's probably a problem with with how how Steve Bannon views Jewish people. But nope, nope. Donald Trump went ahead and he is the chief of fucking. He is his chief advisor. He's a. The, we literally elected a man who appointed the head of an alt-right website to his chief advisor. Like, that blows my mind. And yes, there's something going on in Congress right now where Congress is trying to to get Trump to to rescind that, but knowing how stubborn this man is, um, I I doubt that's going to happen. And we haven't even talked about the fact that in case of both Bannon and Trump, both these guys are known sexual abusers. Oh yeah, no Bannon. <laughs> Bannon was this is this is a ridiculous story because Bannon was arrested and charged with uh, domestic abuse, assault, battery, and intimidating a witness. That was on the charge list. He was charged with intimidating a witness, but was not indicted because quote unquote lack of witnesses. Oh my! Are God. you fucking kidding me? This is the chief advisor to the president of the United States, a man who has the keys to the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world. <laughs> like, this, like, this can't be real. This cannot be real. And good luck asking him questions because it sounds like his press secretary is going to be Laura Ingram, which is oh also my God. just <sighs> incredible to think about. Um, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not good. Um, I, I, I mean, Chuck, I think that your optimism, like, I don't really share it right now. I'm still a little bit more scared of the people who voted for him than him himself. Um, because again, like, I think we can probably, hopefully, as long as, uh, people keep him in check and people are active and, and try to head him off of the past if he tries to do anything too egregious, I think that we can head him off of the past for, hopefully four years until the Democrats find someone who isn't 75 years old to run for them um, and a socialist because Bernie would not have won either. Um, But yeah, like it definitely is very, very disheartening to see someone um, pretty much marginalize all these groups. And I think that's something that a lot of people who voted for Trump didn't understand. They didn't because of lack of exposure or just because maybe they were tired of these smaller groups of people quote-unquote, always, like, getting all this advancement. Like, I know that there was a really interesting theory um, that I was reading about of this fear of, like, falling behind. And that for a lot of white people and people in the middle of the country who may have had jobs lost, they were seeing all these other groups advance. They were seeing gay people get marriage. They were seeing um, more advancement for African-Americans they were seeing more advancements for Hispanic people. They were seeing the DREAM Act happen. And they were like, when's the last time we got something? And that was what compelled them to vote against those groups. It's sort of like a, a socket to you to the people who had told them for such a long time that you have to carry these other groups uh, and not care that fact that your group is being marginalized, which, I mean, I personally disagree with, but I could see that as a compelling argument. Another thing... At least to those. No, no, you're you're right, and I, I like hearing you say that, and like I can totally see that happening. Um, it makes me scared even more, considering the first the first department that's going to get major cuts with with the Trump presidency is going to be the Department of Education. Yeah, well, at least Ben Carson's not going to be running it. He's turned that down today. Um, 
Well, the other thing that I, I'm interested to get your opinions on, and this is another article that I read in the week of this election. It was about like not knowing what to say. Um, and it was about like generally the uh, politically correct tag that was used a lot by Trump in this election. How Trump said he's not politically correct. He says what he wants because he's a businessman, doesn't have time to think about if it affects anyone. And I, I don't know, that was something that I thought was really interesting because I think that in some ways a lot of really progressive activists have put the cart before the horse when it comes to a lot of that rhetoric. I, I guess, Arif, I'll, I'll, I'll ask this question to you. Do you think that that aspect of not knowing what to say also played a factor in this election? Uh, like, what do you mean, like, not knowing what to say? Like, in terms of PC culture in general, um, and in terms of it being sort of an imposition by a lot of activists on the left, because that was an article I read. I'm just interested to hear your opinion on it, because I don't uh, really know yet. I guess I guess I haven't really had time to, like, process that argument. It'd be nice to read that article, but, like, I don't – like, my initial reaction to that is, like, not – necessarily that like i think what happened is uh, is is trump just activated a lot of nativist and xenophobic and racist fears that really uh, that really express themselves in the in the in the polls and a lot of people talk about um how like like the like the reason that uh you know being why a lot of people liked Trump for his anti-PCness is because you know he says what he thinks, uh, and in in doing so he says like a lot of what they think, maybe not as extreme, but sort of positions himself as an ideological ally along these lines. And I think the important thing is is that when Trump was saying a lot of these things, is that he was creating a framing issue for how you think or how you feel about the election and creating some sort of clear. Uh, battlegrounds uh, for you to like understand the way uh, that you would want to make your decision, and so like emotionally, the uh, the things that come to the fore, the things that are most important to you, were the ones that he sort of set the table for. So maybe you don't necessarily agree that like the Mexicans coming over are rapists or whatever, right? But you do agree that immigration is a problem, and he has like framed the issue emotionally to be sort of on your side, even if he doesn't believe the thing that you believe. And this is like a problem Democrats have had for a long time, where they run candidates as if they're a list, as if they're a product with with their policy positions as like a list of features, instead of creating a message about a candidate and then running that message through to people so that they understand the way that their candidate is framed and are emotionally aligned with that. So I don't think that like uh, an inhibition to, to speak the way that you would want to speak or the inability to call out uh, racist stuff without being accused of PC culture was all of that critical to the way uh, that the election played out. I think it's more that the problem is, is, is not that they weren't able to effectively – like brand some of his more offensive languages as, as offensive, but it's that they couldn't create a counter narrative, and, that, and that's just like an, an inherently democratic problem. It's been institutional ever since. Uh, the, the only time it hasn't been institutional was when Howard Dean was running the DNC, which is why I always stick up for him. Uh, but before him and after him, uh, the way that they ran campaigns were very sort of like feature oriented uh, policy campaigns, and so. Uh, I don't think that like your inability to figure out what you're going to say in response to that was the problem because I think that once they kind of figured out a messaging system to deal with like the offensive language, they would have still already missed the boat. So that makes sense. Super quick. 
Howard Dean or Keith Ellison, who do you think should be running the DNC? I am so on board with either of them. Like, I am pumped for whoever it's That's good. Be. That's positive. Yeah. What a nice positive nugget. Um, we're going to end this segment after just maybe one more go around of just what are your plans for the next four years? Like, how do you think people who are concerned and maybe even people who voted for Trump, because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there, um, yeah, how can we make these next four years not shitty is, I guess, the best way to – to put it, and I'm going to start with Chuck. Uh, oof. I mean, I mean, I think the most important thing is to go out and vote in 2018. Um, yep. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that's probably the best chance you have to not make these entire four years completely shitty. And uh, that's probably the easiest way to go making like impactful change. But I think the in the short term, just if you're a minority or gay, lesbian, trans, you know, just look out for each other. Um, don't be afraid to, you know, speak up and stick up for yourself because I don't, I, I think this is just me, but I think, like when you see, when you saw think pieces about like, you know, Trump's racism and, you know, how he was given a voice to, uh, you know, frustrated racist white people, and you know, a lot of people were just like, "Oh, you just need uh, a safe place, a safe place." You know, you just need, you just need a place where you can get away from all that. Well, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how much that really helps people. Uh, I think, I think you need to kind of go out there and just face it and see what the world is, and try to figure out, you know, how can I change these people's minds? How can I get people to, you know see me as a human and I, I think on a social level that could help but obviously the biggest thing is going to vote in 2018 Arif? Yeah, I'm staying in this state man I'm especially staying in the cities like these are my oh, yeah. people yeah uh, they, <laughs> they, they put a Muslim as, as my I got to vote for a Muslim as my state representative and as my national representative uh, and I, I'm not like Muslim myself but like you know, our issues are – like, my name is Arif Hassan. Like, well, our issues are, like, pretty in line with each other. Uh, and, uh, and and so I'm staying here, that's for sure. Uh, so that makes things better for me for, like, the next four years. Uh, also, I don't really want uh, Minnesota to, um, you know, become a swing state again. Uh, and so, like, for political reasons, it makes a lot of sense to stay here too. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know – yeah, there's not much I uh, I have to add to what Chuck said. Obviously, you know the midterm elections are going to be massively important because the amount of latitude uh, that Trump has from a legislative standpoint uh, is roughly equivalent to the amount of damage that he can cause. Uh, and so, if you take that away from him, uh, then I think that you know you've got you've got a lot going for you. Um, obviously. You know, there's a lot that he can do with agencies, and we just talked about that, uh, and you know, executive orders and stuff like that, um, which which are problems. But like, that's going to help. It's not going to stop anything uh, from like a, on a massive scale. It's not going to fix the EPA, but it's definitely going to help in a in a big way. Uh, beyond that, um, the 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 thing that needs to be like done is to have these conversations. It's really frustrating because like, uh, you know, obviously I mean, there's like tons of research out there that like calling people racist only makes them dig in and not like, 
and, and not like evaluate their positions. But like also factually, people are racist. Uh, and so uh, it, it's like, very difficult for me to like feel like I'm having an intellectually honest conversation with people uh, without uh, saying, hey, so this thing where you like you, you didn't care about Jewish people like that's that thing is racist. Like you may not have like called for the death of Jewish people, but like you're allowing it to happen and that's bad and that's racist. And so you can't like have that conversation because it doesn't, it doesn't move people forward. And so I have to figure out a way uh, to have these conversations while I myself can stay like safe. Uh, and so <laughs> <laughs> um, to have conversations that are effective while I am not like threatened uh, and, um, and like maybe I don't know I don't know about changing minds, but like moving things forward. I mean, white people are going to be yeah, in twenty forty two. They have to be prepared for that. So maybe <laughs> maybe making sure that they're not angry about it when it happens would be good. Ben, um, I, yeah, going off what, what Arif said, I think a big part of it's going to be having conversations, having those tough conversations. I mean, you know. I, I have I have family members who I need to have these conversations with and how who I've already started having these conversations with because I mean the truth comes down to it as much as as much as it boils my blood the truth is that like they are still my blood uh, and and I got to do the best to let them know like what what supporting this rhetoric or support or thinking this way is going to be doing to even people that they love I mean I mean they have they have a daughter who who is openly and unapologetically, you know, um, uh, you know, bisexual and, and, you know, they have a son who works very closely with various organizations that this administration would deem like legitimate terrorist organizations. Like, like I, like I need to make it clear to them that if, if David Clark is the director of Homeland Security and, and they, and they paired David Clark with a CIA head who the guy who was the architect of, of Guantanamo Bay. Um, like, like th- they could very, they could very well have a family member disappeared. Like just, I mean, and like that, that's like a ridiculous paranoid thing to say, but I mean, that's, that is not out of the realm of possibility, but more importantly um, than just those conversations is like, like there needs to be shit that happens on the ground. Um, and, and there's a lot of organizations that are going to need a ton of help from from people over the next couple of years, and I just sent out applications um, to do to do work with Planned Parenthood and the ACLU. Um, like I'm going to be staying, like I I foregoing taking classes this summer, and I'm I'm going to be just working with these organizations over the summer and, and hopefully past the summer um, because I mean they they're just going to need people uh, to volunteer and lend a hand because these are important organizations that protect the rights and also protect the health care of American citizens and. And people who, who are who are marginalized on a daily basis, and, and I need to be able to use my whatever to, to, to really help help out any way I can. Um, and yes, vote and political advocacy and, and conversations are going to be really important over the next two and four years to really build a strong Democratic Party um, instead of having this like splintered Democratic Party that puts out limpic candidates that have no real message um, and get the result that they got. And it's it's going to be frustrating, and I know that there's a lot of anger inside the left right now at each other, and, and there needs to be some sort of constructive conversation because we cannot let this shit happen for another four years, you know, in 2020. Like, it just it, it just can't happen. I didn't have too much to add. I just volunteer. 
don't let people who say that you need to like be polite stop you. Uh, I've had people come up to me and I told them that I wanted to volunteer for some organizations that I guess are not the most politically expedient organizations, one of which is an anti-gun organization that I did a little bit of work for earlier this year and someone told me that's not the issue we need to be focusing on now for 2020. Because oh my god, fuck that. And, <laughs> are you serious? And, and, you know, that's an issue that matters to me. And I think that people just need to focus on the issues that matter to them um, and the issues that bring things home. Because I do think that at, at our core, um, we all should be supporting each other. I think that we're all lucky, relatively speaking, to, to live in places and have people who are supportive and who lift each other up. And I think that there are other people who hopefully can come around to that way of thinking in the next few years. I think that we definitely potential is there, and we know the young vote hopefully will be better in the future. So yeah, and and that's the other thing, the young vote. If I mean, if I could just give this little anecdote, uh, I think it I think it'll be important. It might come across as being a little cheesy though, but I think we need to end on a happy note, well, right? You are the master of cheese, so okay, that's good. Okay. I'm, I'm, I am the I am the corny one here. Um, you're like Russell Wilson. So. Oh, Jesus. Um, uh, I had, um, it, like, it was a really weird situation last year. I was in I was in an acting class, and I was working on a project, and, and I had to do a piece from um, uh, a musical called Assassins, and and I don't know if you're not familiar with it. It's like a recount of all the, the assassins in American history of presidents, and they, it's by Sondheim, and it's great, and whatever. That's that's not the point. Um, and the point was, I, the, the thing I had to do is a song that is sung by John Wilkes Booth, and it is a very um, explicit song in some aspects. Uh, and I was having a really, really difficult time with it because I really hated the character, um, and it made, and it kind of informed the 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 performance in a way that wasn't believable, um, and the I had a conversation with the the director and I mean one of the best directors I've ever met and he said you got to understand that a lot of people don't actually hate things, um, a lot of people just love the wrong thing, and uh, their actions though incendiary though violent though disgusting to to you are just misunderstandings of, of something that they love. And if we start understanding everybody's positions from a, from a perspective of, of misplaced love, um, and we ourselves, mo- most importantly, we ourselves informing everything we do out of a place of love, you know, the, pla- the world will become a better place because we're all going to start understanding and loving each other a lot more. And, yes, that's such a stupid bullshit, like, neoliberal thing to say, especially when we're all pissed off and scared. (laughs) But, but what I want to, but what I, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to end with is that, you know, we can do a ton of groundwork, you know, we can, we can, we can vote, we can do all this and that and and all the, the the important bureaucratic stuff. But when it comes down to a micro level of living in this country on a day to day basis, like with this existential dread that I'm sure we're all feeling, it really comes down to, like, just be nice. Like, just, you know, you see someone having a hard time, on the, in, like, in the streets, or, like, you're seeing a hard time, someone having a hard time at work. Like, like try to just pick up your fellow person and, and like, 
even getting, helping somebody out and getting, you know, those little moral victories out of that and making somebody else feel better, like, that's, that's going to help us through those next four years. And, I mean, that's all, that's all fairy dust and rainbows and everything like that, but it, it helps a lot more than, than I think a lot of people realize. I mean, I had a stuffed portion plan, but we're not going to do it tonight. It was about Thanksgiving. Yeah. Honestly, if people didn't want to listen to all of that, they're not going to skip for the fucking stuffed portion. So, um, yeah, that is this week's episode. Ben, Arif, and Chuck, thank you so much for lending your perspectives on this. We'll definitely have to do more of these group sessions again, hopefully, with slightly happier topics in the future. I'm done to talk about Thanksgiving um, next week. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll have you on again, Ben, next week. I mean, mm-hmm. I... We'll figure it out. Um, if you have any thoughts on the podcast, if you have any ideas of guests, any topic ideas, hit me up at Ethan Ham on Twitter. Otherwise, continue to share with your friends, continue to install on iTunes, continue to play on SoundCloud. And my name is Ethan Hammerman. I'll talk to you later.